Our nation is facing an epidemic that many years ago we really did not expect was coming. According to the Center for Disease Control, more Americans have probably committed suicide in the last year than in any year before in American history. And next year will probably be worse. Uh, starting at the beginning of this century, for some reason we do not know why the suicide rate began climbing about 1% a year and it, the rate of climb has gotten faster and faster every year. It's over 2% a year now to the point that the total rate of attempted suicide in our nation is now more than 30% higher than it was just at the beginning of this century. And scientists and pastors and researchers and governments are all beside ourselves trying to understand why, what's going on. So it seems very easy to blame maybe uh, economic hardship. That's the first thing we jump to. Times are tough, people have despair. But when you look deeper in the numbers, it doesn't bear out that way. When the effects of the 2008 recession wore off and things got better, the rate spiked up even more. Um, in addition to that, women have more economic opportunities afforded to them than probably ever before, and yet the rate is climbing fastest among women of career age. Uh, meanwhile, on the other hand, there is only one demographic group uh, whose rate is standing still, who is not going up, and that is the group that may have been hit the hardest by the economic reception, that's African-American men. Their suicide rate is not going up. So others would like to instead blame it on mental illness, uh, but that is a vast misconception. The vast majority of people who attempt suicide have no diagnosable mental illness and have never had any diagnosable mental illness. Instead, it is ordinary people who become so overwhelmed with the circumstances of their life, often one tragic event, that they lose hope and cannot face the rest of their lives. And that one word, hope, I think is what holds the key to the whole tragic thing. What we are missing is hope. We have more things than we've ever had before, right? We are more prosperous than we have ever been before. But we have lost the sense that we are headed anywhere that is worth going to. And that is so much more important. Associated Press says that less than a quarter of our country thinks that our country is headed in the right direction. Uh, the story we've been told our whole lives about human progress and how things are going to get better and better has instead given way to a divided nation, apocalyptic zombie movies, uh, an election cycle that I think we're all dreading, climate reports that will scare the life out of you. And no sense of purpose beyond finding your true self and trying to make an impact in the futile 80 or 100 years that you are given. Here's my point. Within a 15-minute drive of where we are right now, there are 90,000 people who need to know that God has a plan for humanity. People that think God isn't taking us anywhere who desperately need to hear that God is the Ancient of Days, that he holds us in his hand and there is somewhere good that he intends to bring us. It is not for us to go extinct while the earth warms up and the mountains crash into the sea and the walking dead climb out of the abyss, nor is it to sit on clouds with halos over our heads strumming harps while a weird winged baby flies by. That is not God's plan for our future either. 
from the very first pages of the Bible, we can see the purpose God made for humanity, uh, a future for you that is more glorious than any of us could have ever made up, more satisfying than the ending of any movie, something worth living for, something worth getting out of bed in the morning. And I think that when you hear it, your heart, your heart will see that it is the only satisfying future imaginable for humanity. So what is God's plan for us? Turn with me, if you would, to the very first page of your Bible. This is a fun era in our church life when I can be confident we're preaching from the first page no matter what Bible you have. (laughs) The very first page of your Bible. If you don't have one, grab the blue Bible in front of you. It'll be on page one of that Bible. Uh, We're going to read Genesis 1, 26 and 28. And we're going to look there for the purpose and future God gave to humanity. I have been praying this week that... God will use it to show you the future he has for you so that you can live your life in hope and preparing for our great future that awaits us. And it was there as a kernel and as a seed in the very beginning. We'll start with Genesis 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea or over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. The word of the Lord. Perhaps the most defining moment in the Iraq war came a number of years ago when the statue toppled. Some of you remember seeing the video footage that day. Sent a clear signal to the people of Iraq Saddam Hussein is not in power anymore. If he had been, he wouldn't have let that statue come down. His image is gone, and therefore he does not rule here anymore. And I think we probably saw that and sensed that when that statue came down. That is a day of victory for the people of Iraq. But that image is even more powerful to people that live there because since probably the beginning of history, uh, for thousands of years at least, rulers in that part of the world have extended their rule in their absence through dominant images of themselves. That is one way that they extend their rule over many nations. You put a statue of yourself up, an inscription of your face up in a land to show, I rule over this area. And that goes all the way back to the beginnings of history, including ancient Egypt, which the people of Israel were rescued from in slavery just before this book was first written. You see, in ancient times, people believed that the gods extended their sovereign reign over creation through human rulers that were, in their idea, crafted in the image of that god and functioning as covenant sons to that god. So what was going on in Egypt before the people were rescued from it. They had a pharaoh who was not just a king, but was thought to be the son of their most high God and who was made in the very image of that God to rule that land of Egypt in the name of that God. 
And so the Pharaoh was bound to love and submission and to loyalty to whichever God the Egyptians thought were the highest God. And the people of the land were bound to love and submission and loyalty to that Pharaoh who kind of mediated their high God's rule over them. So in the ancient, in the ancient Near East, to be in the image of a God is to be that God's son and to rule in that God's place while that God isn't physically present there. So you can imagine when Israel is freed from slavery from that land, and then when they are in the desert, the words are written from God saying, I will make mankind in my image to have dominion over the whole earth. Those are very potent, powerful words for them. The true God of all the universe made not one elite Pharaoh, but mankind to rule the earth and have dominion over the earth for his sake and for his glory. So they had read inscriptions for generations in Egypt of pharaohs that would say, you know, Ramses won a living statue of such and such a God before finally they read the truth in the desert. God said, I make all of mankind in my image to rule this planet for me. They saw pharaohs using statues and images of themselves to extend their rule, and then they read that they were made in the image of the God who we just sang is the Ancient of Days, the sovereign king over all the universe. That is significant for those people, for all people. To be made in the image of God is to be, in a sense, a son of God commissioned to rule the earth for him. And I'll say that again because it's very, very foundational to what we're saying here. Now, we just saying that God is the ancient of days, right? He is the king over all the universe. For us to be made in his image is to function as one of his sons, ruling creation, ruling the earth for him. And what we're going to do today is start there. We'll look at a few places in the Bible that confirm that, that humanity was meant to rule the earth as sons of God. And then we'll look at the many ways this unfolds in Scripture because it kind of goes through a neat story as the Scripture unfolds. If you missed last, last week, we are very early in a series that we're calling Dawn of the Promise through the book of Genesis that I hope one day will take us through the entire book of Genesis, but it's a very long book that may take quite a while. For now, we're just hovering over chapters one and two because there are so many beginnings and foundations of truth in chapters one and two of Genesis that unfold through the whole scripture. I think of them as, as rosebuds or as buds of a flower that are just there in bud form in the first two chapters of the Bible, but then bloom and blossom as you turn through the pages of the Bible. So we're picking these buds one at a time for the next few weeks and looking at how they unfold through the scriptures. Today we will look at the truth that we are made in the image of God and see how that bud unfolds into a beautiful flower through the pages of the scriptures. So God made us in his image and in his likeness to rule the earth for him. And part of how we know that is by mining ancient Near Eastern literature and understanding that rulers at that time were often believed to be sons of the gods commissioned to rule for them. But there are other ways that we see it too. Uh, first, in the way these verses are structured, which we have up here, uh, they're structured in such a way as to communicate that we rule the earth with dominion because we are made in the image of God. And I'll show you what I mean. Uh, there's one really neat poetic device that is all over the book of Genesis, all over the Old Testament, and somewhat in the New Testament too, and it's called a chiasm. It's based on the letter X. You look at the letter X, the top half goes one way, and the bottom half is a mirror image of the top, right? 
Sometimes poets will do this with their words. They'll say one thing, they'll say a second thing, they'll say the second thing again, and then they'll go back and say the first thing again, right? right? Ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country, right? You country, or country you, you country, right? Back and forth. They do this all over the place. And one of the first ones in the Bible is in that verse 27 there. Can you see God created man in his own image? In the image of God, he created them. You see how that goes back and forth like that? Flip flops. Now, sometimes they get really complex, like nine steps and then all the way back. I mean, all sorts of cool poetry they do in Genesis. But this whole collection of these two verses here is one. The two in the middle correspond to each other, and the two on the bottom correspond to each other. I'll show you what I mean. Verse 27 starts, so God created us in his image, in the image of God he created them, and then he moves to a different concept, male and female he created them, right? Now the third block there is gonna correspond to the second one. And so God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Uh, Now there's a connection, right? We're made male and female, so that we can be fruitful and multiply, right? Okay, now the fourth one corresponds with the first one. The two on the outside correspond to each other. Subdue the earth and have dominion over all the creatures that he had made. So that means the first part, being made in the image, results in subduing and having dominion over the earth. We are made male and female so that we can be fruitful and multiply. We are made in God's image so that we can have dominion over all of the earth. It's just one beautiful poetic way that it communicates that. Now, I hope in another sermon to talk about the male and female part because that is important, but today we're just gonna focus on the top and the bottom of that little diagram there. Being made in the image of God implies that we are a covenant sons of God ruling creation for him, or at least that's what we were intended to be. Uh, Let's look at another place in the Bible where we'll talk about this sonship concept here. I'll show you that being made in someone's image implies that you're their son. Now, eventually what's going to happen is Adam himself is going to have a son. And let's just look at the language that's used to describe that. We're going to move to Genesis 5, verses 1 through 3. Flip there if you'd like. We'll put it on the screens too. So this is one of those genealogies, right, where this guy has this son and he has this son and they live for this many years uh, Just look at how it's worded here. The book of the generations of Adam in the day when God created man, he created him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female and he blessed them and named them man in the day they were created. So mankind, Adam, is made in the likeness of God. And then it gets really interesting. When Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of a son in his own likeness, according to his image, and named him Seth. See the connection there? This is where we get the phrase, like father, like son, right? The sons are often in the likeness of their father. To be that much in likeness is to be, in some senses, a son of that father. So Adam is like God, Seth is like Adam, a son in his likeness. And sure enough, later on, when the book of Luke records a similar genealogy going all the way from Adam to Jesus, Uh, It ends with the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. And so Adam is functioning in many ways as a son of God. And mankind is meant to function as the sons and daughters of God, ruling as his covenant sons and daughters over all of creation because he is king over all the universe. Now, one point of clarity before we move on, 
uh, it uses the word sons a lot when we talk about this. Ladies, you need to know we're talking about you too when we say sons. It's not exclusive to men, but instead, the terminology is sons and kings just to imply that rule. But ladies, you are sons and kings in the kingdom as well. So we, everything we say about this includes you as well. So Adam, whose name means man, was created to rule God's earth as a son crafted in his image. And by extension, since Adam's name means man, all people come from him, Mankind was created by God to rule God's earth as sons crafted in his image. Now, if you want to see this really beautiful, you could flip to Psalm 8, which we just read a little bit ago, one of my favorite passages in the scriptures. And it talks about the beauty of God's creation. We read it last week in the sermon. We read it this morning as part of Sunday morning service. We read it together. Uh, In verse 3, he says there, "'When I consider your heavens, the works of your fingers, the moon and stars that you have ordained,' What is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than God and you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over all the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the sea. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name and all the earth. Isn't that beautiful? It's just such... Such beautiful poetry that God has given us dominion over this whole planet, and it is amazing. That is why, if you care to spend your money on fishing gear and spend your time learning how to fish, you could put a hook in the water and pull out a fish when you want to. That's why you have that dominion over the earth, and that is why it is so satisfying to you when you do. Because dominion over the earth is written on your soul from God. It is something you long for and something you crave. That is why going out to your garden to pick zucchini is so satisfying and makes you so happy. Because dominion over the earth is written on your soul from God. That is why the people of Silicon Valley are working tirelessly to harness the treasures of the earth and turn them into better and better technology that does cooler and cooler things. We are making smartphones out of rocks. Whoever thought we would be able to do that? Why can we do that? And why do we want to? Why are we so driven to make cool stuff out of the earth? Because dominion over the earth is written on our hearts. That's why we mine the earth for coal and turn it into fuel for railroads to get people all around and then gasoline and then electric cars now. We are trying to take the good things of the earth, have dominion over them, and turn them into something great because God made us to do that very thing. That is what you were made for, ruling the earth as a covenant son of God. Okay, so here's how I hope the rest of this will unfold. First, I want to skip around the Bible a little bit and talk about one way that this should affect your life every day. Every day of your life should be different because of this truth in one particular way. Then we will go back to the beginning and walk through the whole story of how this unfolds in Scripture because it's true. I think we all understand that we have some dominion over the earth, but it kind of feels like maybe it's not complete. Like if you go walk through the woods, like mosquitoes are going to bite you even if you tell them not to. Like, what, you know, what's going on there? Why are things not like they should be and God's plan to fix that? Uh, we'll talk about that second. So first, okay, a couple of places where we can see in the Bible this is going to affect every day of your life in one way. It affects you because it affects the way that you look at the people around you. And the Bible says that very explicitly, that if mankind is made in God's image, uh, that means all the people around you are sacred royalty who are worthy of dignity 
and worthy of being respected. That's because they are made in the image of God. That's why we respect people. So I'll point out two places where it says this. Uh, One of them we looked at a few months ago in the book of James, James 3, right? Uh, James is talking about the tongue and how hard it is to tame our tongues and control our words. And he laments, with our tongues we bless our Lord and Father and we curse people who are made in the image and likeness of God. It puts that connection on there. We shouldn't be cursing people because people are made in the image of God. So it affects us every day in the way we talk to people and look at people. Those people are sacred royalty, and we can't be cursing them with our tongues. Why? Because they're made in the image of God. So that's one. Here's another one back in Genesis The story of the flood, many of you know, um, the the earth had grown so wicked and so corrupt and people were murdering each other, doing terrible things to each other. And the Lord says, I'm gonna wipe him from the earth and start over with Noah and his family. We're gonna start fresh. And he does just that, it's catastrophic. Noah leaves the ark, Uh, they begin a new day on planet earth and God sets a new rule in place. And that is in verse six of, I think, chapter eight of Genesis. We'll put it up on the screens. Uh, The Lord says to Noah, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man must his blood be shed, for, man, for God made man in his own image. So why is it such a big deal to murder somebody? Why does that matter so much? Because God made mankind in his image. And so he says, all right, fresh start. We're starting new on planet Earth. New rule, guys. Y'all gotta stop killing each other. That's not okay. And the only time I will allow you to take someone's life is as capital punishment for someone else who has committed murder. That's the only time. Why? Because I made people in my image and I don't want my image destroyed. Now, If Saddam Hussein had been in power in Iraq that day when that statue came down, do you think he would have let that statue come down? Nope, not a chance. No, he would not. Because he doesn't want to see the image of himself get destroyed. Not if you're in power. No, you don't want that. God feels the same way. He says, I am sovereign king over all. That person is my image and my likeness. You cannot kill and destroy that person. That is how precious people are to him. So God says in those two places that every person you have ever met is worthy of dignity, and the reason they are worthy of dignity is because they're made in the image of God. So what's the test of whether someone deserves your respect? The test is, did they descend from Adam? Are they made in the image of God? And if so, nothing else matters. They deserve your respect. Now that's really important for us today because For all of our nation's talk about equality and dignity, 21st century America really does not follow through on it very well. There are messages of equality everywhere, but few of us actually treat people who are different with us with a sense of respect and dignity. We curse anybody who disagrees with us. Just go online and read Facebook or a message board if you want to hear that or just watch cable news. White supremacist ideals are starting to flourish again. We certainly don't treat unborn babies as our equals in our land. It's empty talk when we talk about equality. It lacks follow through because it lacks a foundation. We don't have any reason to believe that all people are equal and worthy of dignity. Here's what I mean. There's a decent chance your next door neighbor, if you asked, would probably say something like, yes, I believe every person is equal and worthy of dignity. Yes, absolutely, I believe that. 
But if you asked your neighbor why, well, why is every person worthy of respect and dignity? Probably can't tell you. Most people probably couldn't tell you why. Uh, Because even back to the founding of our nation, we say we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. So we just start with the assumption that people are created equal. We don't have a ground to build that on, any reason to claim that. This is where the world has failed them. It insists that everyone is equal, but it doesn't give them a reason why. The Bible says that all of Adam's descendants are worthy of respect and dignity, but if you take Adam away, you have no foundation for claiming that everyone is worthy of respect and dignity. And so Darwinism, which many of them believe, really gives them a terrible foundation for claiming that everyone is equal. If you believe that within certain species, some wind up with superior genes and they're able to prevail over the other, and that is how species evolve into better and better things, well then as a human species, that naturally leads to saying this group has better genes than this group, and so this group should prevail over that group. And that brings us to where many people in our nation are today. Say what you want about it, but they understand the effects of Darwinism. God says that there is a reason why all people are created equal, and that reason is that every person is made in his very image, in his likeness. And if you don't embrace that, you'll have a hard time following through and actually treating other people with dignity because that includes the jerk on the internet who disagrees with you. Even that person is made in God's image and likeness. They're sacred royalty. That includes the person who looks very different from how you look. They are sacred royalty. That includes the unborn baby with Down syndrome that has a 90% chance of being murdered before it leaves the womb. That baby is sacred royalty made in God's image. So this teaching from the Bible then gives gives it the only foundation for claiming that all people are equal and worthy of dignity. And it means that every person you see, whether they agree with you or not, is worthy of your respect and how you treat them. All right, let's move on. Here's the rub with this whole thing, right? I think most of us sense that we have some sort of authority and dominion over the earth. But as I said a little bit ago, you can go hunting in the woods and you can prevail and come back with a deer if you want to, but you just can't tell the mosquitoes to stop biting you, right? Like they don't listen to you. And that bear that you're shooting at, if you don't get it, it's probably gonna come and get you. And we certainly don't have any control over the storms that are coming and all sorts of weather phenomenon like that. And so we kind of look at this and say, okay, are we really in charge? of this planet like it is not doing what we want to and the climate change reports are definitely telling us that it's not doing what we want to what's going on here it almost feels like we have forfeited our rule over this planet and that is exactly what we did we forfeited our rule over this planet the way the story unfolds is um, you know God starts us off in this beautiful, bountiful garden, right? And he plants Adam and Eve there and he says, work this garden and keep it. That's how you're gonna exercise your dominion over the earth, work this garden. Uh, And there's this order, right? God is in charge and then Adam and Eve ruling it as covenant son and daughter. Uh, And then they rule the animals and all of creation, right? And the beasts of the field are one of them that are named. Well, one of the beasts of the field slithers into the garden right? It's a serpent. It's Satan. And he manages to deceive first Eve and then Adam into rebelling against God. 
So it's supposed to be we do what God says, the animals do what we say, right? Instead, we listened to the animal that told us to rebel against God. And we flipped the whole thing on its head when we did that. God comes in the garden and he, and he gives out curses as a response. One of those curses is to Adam and he says, cursed is the ground because of you. Now it's going to give forth thorns and thistles and by the sweat of your brow you're going to have to work and eat your food. And next thing you know, we've got dandelions and crabgrass in our lawn. Uh, next thing you know, we've got frustrating jobs and wicked bosses and tools that break. And it just seems like anything that would help us to have dominion over this earth breaks and doesn't work. And when it's all over, instead of ruling the earth, we eventually fall back into the earth and we get buried by it. How pitifully hopeless. And I think we can all understand that is not what we were made for. And today, as we push the limits of what mankind is able to do, and even as we try to extend that dominion out into the moon and to Mars, it's no wonder that we wind up hopeless and we wind up harming ourselves and killing ourselves at alarming rates. We are probing our limits and we are finding that it is not as good as our hearts insist it must have been. There must be something better than this we were made for. And so how are we going to find our destiny again? We forfeited it. We, we lost it. How are we going to find the kingship over the earth that we were made for? How will, how will God arrive at his plan of a man ruling the earth as his son in his image if all men are rebelling from him and fumbling our dominion over the earth and eventually headed back into the earth to decompose forever? Well, this is when it gets good. This is, this is when it gets really fun. The rescue plan all hinges on one man. One descendant of Adam, who is not a son of God, but who the scripture says was declared to be the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. Who was not made in God's image, but is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Who rules not as a king, but has kings coming to worship him when he is born because he is the king of kings. Our destiny comes back together on one man, Jesus Christ. The one who says, I am the son of God. The one who says, behold, I died and I am alive forevermore. Who says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And he calls you right now, come and rule with me. Come and take the destiny that you were made for but lost. The dominion and dynasty that your soul craves is freely offered to you and can only be found through Jesus Christ. Here's how it's going to look. Jesus is coming back. He's left and promised he is coming back. When he comes back, he will destroy all of his enemies. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. In 2 Timothy 2.12, after saying that we're going to rise from our graves and other places, it says, if we endure with him, we also shall reign with him. He's going to build a new kingdom, new creation where Bugs don't bite, and nothing usurps our rule, where the last enemy to be defeated is death, and he's going to reign it as king of kings, and he invites us to reign with him. That is what you were made for. That promise, ruling forever with Jesus, will give hope to anybody in despair, won't it? 
No matter how miserable or mediocre or failure-filled your life is, with King Jesus, you can rise above it. I'll show you this by playing pretend with you for a few minutes, how hope just helps the soul in this way. Imagine with me that two interns walk into Google one day, and these are guys that have advanced degrees in computer programming, but they have to start as interns because that's what you got to do out there. They walk into Google, they sit down with their manager, and the manager says, okay, guys, for your one-year internship, we have two buildings, building A and building B, and you are each in charge of all the laundry for one building. Now, our employees live here for 80, 90, 100 hours a week. They do their sports here, they eat here, and we got to do their laundry for them if they're going to be here and be working this much. And so in each of those buildings on the very bottom of the basement, there's just this pile of stinky laundry and we just need you guys to just do all the washing of it and fold it up and take it back to the people that it belongs to. So first intern goes into his room and he finds in there really high quality washing machines, good lighting, good conditions to do the whole thing in, uh, but he's still got to spend the next year of his life washing nasty, they played sports in it, laundry, uh, having no fun with it. So the manager leaves him there and takes the other intern into building B. And in building B, there are no washing machines. There's a washboard and a bucket. And he's gonna have to do it by hand. There's not good lighting, and there's not a really good system to organize all this stuff, and he's just gonna have to tough it out. And the manager says to that intern, okay, I know these conditions are bad, but it's that way on purpose. It's designed to teach you humility because our parent company, Alphabet, has decided that at the end of your one-year internship, we would like you to be CEO for the rest of your life. Which one of those two guys do you want to be? You want to be the guy working in the good conditions, or do you want to be the guy that has to work in miserable conditions for a year and then gets to be CEO for the rest of his life? My point's this. You don't need better conditions. You need hope. You need to know that you're going somewhere. And Jesus promises to take all of his people somewhere ruling and reigning with us. And he's reforming us into his image so that we can serve in that kingdom that he is building. Colossians 3 says, you laid aside the old self with its evil practices. You have put on the new self that is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. We are being restored into God's image so that we can rule with him. And so your whole life right now, the whole rest of your life is just preparing you. It's like an internship preparing you for the rule and reign that you are gonna have one day when he comes back. He's given you a little kingdom that may be just the size of a bedroom that you've gotta be clean or it may be a whole company that you're running or who knows how big or small it is, but whatever it is, he's given it to you as training for the rule and reign that he's going to give you one day when he comes back. So. The way you lead your Sunday school class, the way you steward that committee you sit on, the, the way you keep your room or your house or your lawn clean or the family you're called to lead or the business you run, however big your little kingdom is, it's training for the wisdom you're going to need to rule with Jesus in his kingdom. That's why the Proverbs matter so much. Have you ever noticed that the Proverbs are written to the elite of Israel? They're not written for the common man. It's kings saying, my son, my son, do this right? Because they're training them to rule in the kingdom. Uh, at the end of it, one of the, one of the king's mothers says, oh, Lemuel, it is not for kings to get drunk with wine. Oh, this, don't do this. It's not for kings. Let the common people do that. Why, why is it like, why is it advice for future kings? And what business do we have reading the Proverbs, a royal wisdom and instruction manual? Well, 
It's written for sons who are going to rule in the kingdom one day. And what are we? Sons who are going to rule in the kingdom one day, right? So we need that wisdom in that Proverbs because it is preparing us to rule in the kingdom with him. Not only that, but Jesus teaches in the parable of the talents that how you steward what he gives you to rule over today will affect how much you rule over in the coming kingdom, right? Some of you know the story. A master goes away, it's actually a ruler, a king that goes away, and he leaves three different servants, one with 10 talents, which is a lot of money, five talents for another and one talent for another. He leaves them all with portions of his estate, says, manage this while I'm gone, and he comes back. And the first one who had the 10 talents said, I invested and I made 10 talents more. And what does he say to him? He says, well done, come and share in my happiness. I will put you over 10 cities because he stewarded what he had well while the master was away. The one with five talents gets put over five cities. The one with one talent buried his and made nothing out of it and he gets cast out of the kingdom. What's he teaching there? Well, if we are really part of his kingdom, we're gonna take what he stewarded us with and we are gonna use it for his good. And when he comes back, he's gonna say, because you stewarded that well, I am putting you over this. So, funnily enough, for all the high and lofty stuff we've talked about, uh, the application for some of us is probably to go home and clean out our car, right? Uh, or to rearrange the cabinets or just make the house more ready. Jesus is going to come back and he's going to see this stuff and he's going to put us over stuff in the kingdom based on this. Uh, so, the better you manage everything he's given you, the better prepared you'll be to rule as king with Jesus and the more you will rule over. That means for some of you, you need to cling to those Proverbs so that you can learn how to steward what you have well. Some of you, especially if you're young, should just spend every day for the rest of your lives reading one chapter in the Proverbs so that you just get them. Or every day pick one proverb to memorize for the rest of your life so that you just get that book and are ready to rule in the kingdom. And others of you need to switch kingdoms because you're in the wrong kingdom. Others of you are still living in that rebellion from God. The rebellious prince that says, I want nothing to do with your rule. I don't want to live under you, high king. I'm going to steward my kingdom the way I want, and it is going to appeal to my desires and do what I want because I'll do what I want with my life. The Lord looks at that and says, I am coming back to conquer every foe, and you do not want to be my foe when I come back. Now, that rebellion from him is a capital offense worthy of death, but he says, I have died to pay for your sin. I have died to offer you forgiveness. And through the blood that he shed on the cross when Jesus came to earth and died on the cross and then rose, he offers payment for our rebellion and our sin. And he says, you can still switch sides. You can still come back to the kingdom that is going to rule and reign one day with me. If that is something you want to do, uh, what you need to do is turn from your lifestyle and follow Jesus. Uh, give your whole life to him as king. Declare your allegiance to him by being baptized in front of everybody and joining the church in front of everybody. Come talk to me or one of our deacons or the person that brought you here if you want to learn more about that. So God's plan for humanity has always been for sons created in his image to rule the earth. And it will be fulfilled by the son, the image of God, ruling and his people ruling as sons and daughters under him. What a glorious truth. Let's pray together.